0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton is starting to map out how the city will gradually reopen after the peak of COVID-19. We'll talk about how that's going to happen. The premier announced a temporary pandemic pay raise for frontline workers, and paramedics are not on that list. The president of OPSU, Local 256, Mario Pastorero, joins us to discuss that. And the Canadian Medical Association put out a poll saying the lack of personal protective equipment and testing is among one of the highest sources of anxiety for physicians. We'll give you all the details on that, too. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get local. Uh, Hamilton is starting to map out how the city will gradually reopen after the peak of COVID-19. How is this going to be tackled? Well, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Paul Johnson, who is the director of our Emergency Operations Center here in the city of Hamilton. Paul, good morning. I hope all is well with you.
1: Uh, good morning, Bill. Yes, things are, are good for a great Tuesday.
0: Excellent. Uh, I, I know you guys have talking about this. We had the mayor on the program the other day, and he mentioned that you had had some, cons- some conversations about this with all the appropriate folks at the Emergency Operations Center. You're quoted as saying, as, as chaotic as the closing was, I actually believe the restart of services is going to be even harder. What do you mean by that, Paul?
1: Uh, well, I mean, there's so many factors that are going into how we're reopening programs that, uh, you know, when you're closing, it was, it was a chaos of communication and making sure that we were getting uh, the right signage up and letting people know and getting our staff redirected to home all within a couple of days' notice. But uh, the reality is about opening, uh, one is how do we do that safely? uh for all involved and and of course we we think about our staff because they're the ones that deliver service but uh we think about the community that comes and uses those services and then it's it's just how will we have in place the right kinds of uh of uh, of approaches that would allow us if we needed to uh throttle back a little bit and and in, and increase a little bit uh, what does that look like and so i i i think as everybody has said and it's uh you know it's it's the only cliche I guess we're all using, is there is no light switch for this. So if it was simply that we're reopening all services and it's back to normal, uh, that would be relatively straightforward and, in fact, would be a fairly um, uh, easy task. It's not. We know that uh, many of the measures uh, around physical distancing, around uh, proper hygiene, around uh, protecting those who are vulnerable in our community, that's going to go on for a long time. And that's measured in months, and and I, I read some things measured in years. So that's the, the challenge we have in terms of our programming is how do we do all of this, recognizing that uh, COVID hasn't left our community, uh, even as well as we're doing here in Hamilton, uh, and as well as we may be doing in the province of Ontario, uh, the reopening uh, doesn't bring us out into a world of, without COVID. It still exists and we're going to have to live with that as we deliver more services.
0: Well, let me ask you about that. And and, and by the way, I, I'm pleased to, to know that you guys are taking a measured approach to this and, and that's good. Some other jurisdictions, not so much. But we were told, uh, even at the beginning of this process, Paul, by uh, the, the experts and you know our Medical officer of Health, Dr. Richardson and, and others, that one of the best signs that maybe we're starting to flatten this curve and maybe it's time to, to start looking at this next phase is if we had 14 days with no new cases you get that and they say well that means that okay we've got this under control we're nowhere near that we haven't done that as a matter of fact i don't think any jurisdiction on ontario has done that yet we're moving ahead anyway are we are we putting the cart before the horse here
1: well the, the good thing about so you're, so you're right we're not there yet and actually what was pleasing to hear yesterday is that that is what will drive the timing so while we are doing all of this planning and we're starting to now understand more from the provincial framework of of what reopening looks like it's where it's when that happens that hasn't yet been determined and mm-hmm. i actually really applaud the provincial government for allowing the the cases and our ability uh, both within the the healthcare system and the public health system those abilities to respond and our cases overall Will drive when this all happens. So our goal now, as an EOC, because you know most most things are just closed right now. So we're and we're in a bit of a a, a, a status of just doing our day to day work in this in this environment. Is we can turn our heads to how will we reopen? But I really um, I, I'm I'm pleased to hear that when we reopen, we'll be driven by. Uh, what's happening in the community and what's happening with this virus not by some mythical date on a calendar and that's always been the challenge for this i know people want it whether it's uh, school reopenings whether it's when our rec centers will open whether it's when we can get back to uh, you know watching our beloved cats play football uh, we all want to know what that date is uh, and the challenge with this is that that i i don't think there is a date that you can just pick and say yep yeah, six weeks from now it's all good uh, that will be determined by how the course of this uh, this pandemic uh, goes, and it will differ in communities. And that's also why I think it's very good to uh, to be able to look at this locally as well as look at it provincially. So there is still, again, no date. So what we didn't hear yesterday was, like some other provinces, here's a date we're going to do this, here's a date when we're going to do this. What we heard yesterday is these are the conditions uh, for us to consider going into that very first phase, which will be a very minor restarting of some things so stage one in the province of ontario is not going to look like uh, what was happening in december january in our communities it's going to it's going to be a very uh, slow uh, reopening of some things that will allow people to get out a little bit more and engage perhaps in some certain businesses or activities a little bit more but far from a, a reopening entirely of the community
0: Yeah, notwithstanding that and, and that's good news Hit look at i I've, I understand the cabin fever. I mean, you know, we're broadcasting from home, and I think aside from a couple of trips to the pharmacy, this this has been it for me, and I know a lot of people in similar situations. So there's that that angst to say, let's let's get out of here. Let's go do some stuff. But we're told by the medical experts, Paul, that as soon as we start doing that, we're going to see a spike in the number of cases because we're going to start mingling again. Uh, That's got to, I would think, cause some trepidation.
1: Uh, well, it causes some trepidation in terms of we want to make sure we protect vulnerable populations for sure. And, and yes, we don't want uh, those spikes to be dramatic spikes. Uh, and that's why the medical and the public health systems need to be ready for this. And the good news is, is that in Hamilton, um, you know, we are ready for this. We have a strong public health system. We have great uh healthcare uh, providers uh, not only with our hospitals but others in the community and so if we are ready with uh, the ability to to care for people if we are ready with the ability to contact trace when we uh, do have an uh, a, a case in the community and make sure that we isolate that individual find out what contact they had isolate those folks or or monitor those folks whatever the case may be let public health do their work uh, you can be quite successful with this. So to say we'll reopen and no one will get sick is, is as you've said, uh, just not true. Uh, we will have people that uh, will contract this virus. The key is, do you have the system in place to uh, allow that not to become an overwhelming number of people? And then the second piece is, how do we continue, continue to protect? those who are vulnerable particularly the elderly uh, for whom this can be uh, quite a different path when they are uh, when they're infected with this uh, with this virus so those things need to be in place um, so yeah it will be and that's why I think it has to be this staged approach is we have to get people used to doing more things and doing it in safe ways and that's a uh, a bit of this this whole rethinking of the way we do things. I mean, if you had told me six months ago that I'd be lining up to get into a grocery store and yeah. then going in the pathways that we have in the grocery store and checking out the way I do, I'd, I'd tell you, you're crazy. And here we are six months later doing exactly
0: that. There's going to be some adjustment by people too, and that, by the way, when you said it was going to be harder to, to to do the opening, I agree with you totally. And I think one of the other factors, I know you didn't touch on it, but I know it's in your in your mind anyway, is the public's reaction to this. I mean, we saw some jurisdictions in the states open up their beaches and some other places, and and uh, notwithstanding the fact that they said, look, it go slow here and still maintain the the physical distancing, they ran like bees to honey to this stuff, and it just like whoa, whoa, guys, it looked like you know opening the Walmart store on Black Friday a few years ago. Uh, so we've got to we've got to manage this, and that's going to be pretty difficult. And one of the things that they're going to have to manage an awful lot of people who want to continue to, to to wear personal protective equipment, whether it's masks or gloves. And and I can understand that there's going to be some nervousness there. We don't have enough of that stuff for our medical people, let alone for the public at this stage, anyway, Paul.
1: Uh, no personal protective equipment continues to be a a struggle from uh, the medical side of that i think what we could start to do is is really ramp up the ability of people to have cloth masks which is really what the public are asked to do when they go out now yeah. um, it's not a requirement but if you go out do not wear a surgical mask those are needed for for uh, those who who require it uh, certainly don't buy and use n95 masks uh, those are in very very short supply across the system But I think the cloth masks, uh, you see a lot of production going into those and and, uh, these what we call non-medical masks, but they're generally a cloth-based piece. And I think those could ramp up and and really be effective. And yes, for the public, it is uh, do not take medical supplies away from from those who need it. Uh, Use non-medical supplies. Uh, Really what you're doing is you're protecting uh, other people Uh, if you are infected and sometimes you may be infected and don't know it Uh, Mm -hmm. you know this terminology of the asymptomatic people is really just there to say you you feel okay but you uh you could have this and you could be transmitting it and again it's all could because we're learning more and more about this virus you know how long does immunity last all those types of things Uh, and and this is the other challenge with this and and i know that there's been some criticism of, of certainly some of the, the federal and, and provincial health leadership around this. Well, they keep changing their their uh, advice. And the reality is, is we keep learning as we go. Uh, somebody described this as building the plane while you're flying it. It is a little bit of that. And so, you know, we don't know about this virus. If we did, we would have had different things in place to, to contain it. So as people learn about this, I think the advice will change. But right now, if people are out and And Wearing a mask, it really is about you not spreading it to someone else. And and that may be very much some of the ways that we have to do certain services uh, and deliver certain things because, uh, you know, if we can keep those droplets from flying around the places where people are engaged in, we'll have a better chance of, of stopping people from getting sick.
0: Well, and by the way, I'm on the same page as you on this one. I'm dismissive of anybody that starts being critical of the people that say, well, you know, the information is changing. To me, that's a good thing. That means they're doing the research on this and trying to explore this. People tend to forget uh, the ones that want to be dismissive of this. You know, oh, look, at only X number of people died as compared to flu. This has only been with us for three and a half months. Uh, so we we don't know much about this virus. We don't know about the impact. We don't know, as you say, what the incubation period is. We've been told it was 14 days when this started. Now I'm starting to hear CCM reporting that said it might be 21 days. But but And, and we don't know yet. We don't know about immunity. There's a lot of stuff that we don't know at this stage, uh, which is why we're really kind of working on parallel paths here, aren't we, Paul? I mean, obviously we're dealing with this and dealing with the people that contract the virus, but at the same time I'm trying to find out what this thing is that we're dealing with. No,
1: absolutely, and, and that body of knowledge will continue to grow, and that will help us be more uh, uh, more straightforward in terms of the advice and, and the guidance. The one piece of good news, though, uh, Bill, in all of this is something for us to remember, which is what we... The things we do know, and you hear the, uh, Dr. Richardson say it all the time, is that we have a very, 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 very strong chance of just stopping us in its tracks with good public hygiene um, uh, and public health measures about hand hygiene, about coughing into your sleeve, about avoiding, uh, you know, keeping that physical distancing and things like that. So for all the things we don't know, What we do know is that this is, generally speaking, uh, done through that droplet transfer they talk about. So if you can stay far enough away from people around you and you can practice all of those good um, hand-washing techniques that we should be doing uh, most of the time anyways, not touching your face and certainly not uh, touching your eye area, your mouth area, uh, those are the kinds of things that can really everybody can do even in the absence of knowing everything we, sh- we we hope we would know about this virus and 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 all the other pieces there are lots of things that we can do to to protect ourselves and protect those that we care about and that's I think the message that we want to have with all the things that change the one thing that hasn't ever changed is uh, keep your distance uh, you know uh, practice that uh, hand-washing and all of those good hygiene uh, measures and if you are sick Stay at home, and that is the other big piece. Is we simply cannot have people who are feeling ill uh, deciding that they'll go and do a few things. Particularly once things start to open up, Bill. Right now, uh, everybody's staying here. My worry is, you know, you get those those folks that call themselves troopers for, you know, continuing to do the things they do while they're sick. And in this case, we really need people when they're sick to stay at home. And if they feel that they've got uh, symptoms of COVID, contact public health, contact their family physician, uh, take it from there to determine whether they may need to get tested and all of those good things
0: one of the pet peeves that I'm hearing more and more from, uh, in I'm sure you guys are too, Paul, is uh, people that are wearing face masks, whether it's their homemade or whatever the case might be, figuring, okay, I don't have to do the physical distancing anymore because I've got a mask. No, you still do. Uh, that's thats It's not one or, or the other. It's both if you want, but that six-foot difference or whatever it's going to be has to be maintained, I would think, to, to, to battle this thing. And I know there's medical uh, debate going on right now as to whether or not the quarantining and physical distancing makes any difference at all well certainly it does because we've been doing that and the numbers are a lot lower than we had projected they were going to be it's not a panacea but it's it's a good start and it's something that everybody can do i would think
1: well it is and, and it goes back to what we do know about this and that is if we have less physical contact with people we'll have less spread of this and uh, and and that is what's simp- what's simply quite simply occurred in in our country uh, as a whole and certainly in hamilton we've seen some good things around that as well so yes, it, it is about a series of things. It is about keeping some separation, uh, regardless of, as you say, the kinds of things you might be wearing and and doing. And that's that's you know the the vast majority of time. I get this question all the time about well then how how on earth can I walk down the street because sometimes I walk by somebody and it's less than six feet and of course there is it's extremely low risk to walk by somebody uh, to walk by somebody in an aisle of a grocery store to walk by somebody uh, as you're walking down the street what we're talking about is you don't want to be sitting and standing for periods of time uh, very close to one another. Uh, you know, the old meetings we used to have, the lunch rooms where, you know, four or five people gather around a small table and share good conversation over, over lunches. I mean, those things are not going to happen in the workplace if we want to continue to stop the spread of this uh, in those early phases. We need to keep that distance. And then the other piece is we need to clean, 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 clean ourselves by washing our hands and clean surfaces so that uh, we can continue to keep the virus from being on some of those high touch areas. So those are all the things that you're seeing now happen when you go to these essential services, whether it's grocery stores or pharmacies well, this is going to be the norm for whatever business you're in, uh, whatever service you're you're going to uh, for the foreseeable future.
0: Yeah, and uh, I know that you, uh, conversations are already underway with you and your staff and, of course, uh, the Mayor's Task Force, which is going to get set up uh, with that motion tomorrow at Council. And we'll watch for those next steps as uh, the days and weeks uh, unfold. And it is going to be a while before we are back to whatever they call normal. I think uh, the Prime Minister made that point again yesterday. Paul Johnson, the Director of Emergency Operations for the Center uh, here in Hamilton. Well uh, stay well. Thanks so much for this, and uh, we'll talk again shortly. You bet. Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye. Take care. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML. How are the medical community handling what's going on? I mean, we've seen some stories and some incredible stories of heroism by people on the front lines dealing with COVID-19 and dealing with some of the people that have contracted the virus uh, and uh, to their credit, the government, both federal and provincial governments, and, and uh, even here at the municipal level, have tried to accommodate and tried to A, acknowledge, and B, to, to do what they can to try to help some of those folks. And I guess that was at least part of the motivation anyway for uh, the Premier to make an announcement over the weekend about uh, what he calls a a pandemic payment for what he uh, he described as frontline workers. Uh, It's going to be an extra $4 per hour pay premium for employees for the next few weeks anyway, or it could be a lump sum payment. Uh, Sounds great. Sure it does. Except there are a bunch of people that are risking their lives on a daily basis that got left off this list, including pharmacists, respiratory therapists, and paramedics. I don't know why such an oversight occurred, but it has. So I wanted to get Mario Pastorero, the president of OPSU Local Two Fifty Six here in Hamilton, on the program to comment that and uh, about this rather. Mario, uh, great to have you with us again. Thanks so much. I trust you guys are doing well.
2: Yes, thank you for having me on, Bill. And uh, we're working through this crisis, Bill.
0: Well, yeah, diligently and uh, with uh, some tools that uh, that you absolutely needed. I know that uh, we talked about how you guys were going to prepare your staff for, for what's going on, and uh, we've seen some pictures, of course, of the extra gear that you've had to wear as a result of this, especially for calls. Uh, you've got some, staff, some team members that are specially trained to deal with this sort of thing. Uh, I don't know what else you have to do to, pro- to, to suggest to the, to the government here that you guys are included in these frontline workers. I mean, you've got people uh, on, in your unit right now, are right, there are putting their lives on the line on a daily basis?
2: Absolutely. Uh, in addition to the day-to-day work um, that we do, we have stood up, stepped up, and worked in the public health, testing, swabbing, and treating patients in various high-risk congregate care facilities the hot zones of reflection and transmission, if you will. So um, we think we've done our part. Um, the announcement on the weekend um, created a lot of dismay and disappointment for paramedics. feel a little bit like that lone child in the classroom who didn't get a Valentine's Day card from the teacher. Not really feeling the love, Bill. i not sure why we're remiss along with some of the other uh, professions that are worthy of acknowledgement as well.
0: Sadly, though, Mario, this is a feeling I think you guys have had before, because, it, it, you know, you and I have talked over the years about, uh, for instance, uh, well, regular compensation. In other words, uh, you know, pay uh, between other frontline services, police, fire, et cetera, and paramedics seem to be way down that list. Uh, so the oversight, I guess, is not totally unexpected, but uh, unwarranted, to be, to be sure, because of the work that you've done, and, and, and not just here in the Hamilton area, but right across the province.
2: Yeah, we always seem to have to fight to justify the value that we bring to the
0: table. But, you know, we've been
2: uh, at least referenced um, and acknowledged in words um, in what we've done through through this pandemic. Um, But we haven't been acknowledged in deeds. And this is is an example. I mean, paramedics are at the highest risk. We are at the front of the front lines. First to make patient contact with the first to render patient care And we're the first to bring the patient to definitive care and hoping that they make it. And to be um, not acknowledged in this manner is disappointing. And I will also tell you this. The public has been very, very supportive of the good work that we've done. They've seen it. uh, They've experienced it. And, you know, right from some of the different food vendors to uh, the public on the street, the the honking, the, the thumbs up, we've gotten good support from the public. I'm disappointed that the premier, uh, and you know, perhaps he, it was an oversight, and I'm hoping the oversight can be corrected. But he, out of the 350,000 workers that are recognized for pandemic pay, acknowledging the health risks that they've taken on for themselves and for their families, they forgot paramedics. Somewhat disappointed. I'm hoping he can make up the last ground and correct the oversight and uh, compensate, rightly so, uh, paramedics along with some of the other uh, professions that you've mentioned, Bill.
0: Well, you know, over the years, and I've known you for quite a long time now, Mario, and we've we've had these discussions about education and educating the public and, frankly, to a certain extent, even educating some people on City Council about the role that paramedics actually play in the healthcare care system. I know that way back when, I mean, a lot of people used to characterize what you guys did as, well, they're they are the ambulance drivers. No, 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 no. There's a lot more to this. You're medically trained professionals, and as you say, you're not only usually first on the scene, but you're the ones that make the first initial diagnosis about what sort of treatment is going to be needed in situations, which is critical in the survival, whether it's a a, a suspected heart attack, whether it's COVID-19, whatever the case might be. You you guys are there.
2: The education and skill set that we bring, pre-hospital emergency care as first responders is unquestionable and is being recognized across the province, across all uh, public health uh, entities. And that's evidenced by the fact that they're coming to us to have us assist them in some of these high-risk zones. So our medics are uh, punching above their weight, jumping out of the box, standing up, stepping up, and doing far and above what is our normal practice and keep in mind what our normal practice is we respond to uh, emergencies of all sorts day and night 24 7 this pandemic has now put the focus on the value of what paramedics bring to the table and to bring it back to the premier not acknowledging us it's a slap it's disrespectful that's the way we see it hate to be blunt hopefully it's corrected and let's move forward because we want to continue to participate within this crisis and even moving forward when that vaccine is finally discovered paramedics will likely play a role in vaccinating our citizens so um shaking our heads uh, the public's probably a little bit more blunt about why we were uh not acknowledged we were overlooked and i'm just i'm just hopeful uh, that it can be corrected. And, and this is not an issue of us saying more and more important. We're no more important than a lot of those other workers that have been recognized and some of those other professions that should have been recognized. But we're just as important. And to be over overlooked
0: and snubbed
2: is not appropriate.
0: Absolutely. Uh, these are difficult times for everybody who's up on the front line. Uh, how's, how are your people handling all this?
2: Well, this crisis has created fear, panic, and uncertainty for all segments of society. Paramedics um, are not immune. You know, we, uh, we, we're vulnerable as well. Uh, the paramedics are feeling anxious, vulnerable um, at work, at home, for their families, for themselves. So it's it's difficult. Um, we have good community supports. We have a good peer support team that uh, has been very active. And I think we're all working together. We're getting through it, and hopefully we'll be able to beat this as best we can and continue to participate in the healthcare care system as we have thus far.
0: I was wondering about this because we've had discussions in the past about stress levels and, and, and mental health issues, frankly, with people up there. I mean, you guys see some of the worst things, being the first ones on scene, and, and have to initiate treatments in situations like this. And, and I know it's caused a great deal of stress in the past. It must be exacerbated by what's going on with COVID now.
2: It hasn't gotten better, for sure. And, you know, we have confidential lines that our people can access, and we encourage them to do so. Uh, You know, paramedics are three times more uh, as often than the regular public to um, suffer from PTSD. Um, We're vulnerable. We're first there. Uh, We see destruction at every level within life, uh, within society, and we are vulnerable. Uh, All we can do is provide the resources and encourage our people to seek assistance and um, and hopefully uh, the decision-makers acknowledge the value that we bring to the table.
0: Uh, let me get back to the fu- financial issue, if I could, for just a couple of seconds. Uh, this is relatively fresh news. It was just a couple of days ago the Premier made this announcement. Uh, has there been initiation at all by OPSU and, and, and your brother uh, unions around the province to sit down and, and say, hey, listen, uh, let's talk about this? Yes, both
2: locally and provincially through our analysts Division. Through Smokey Thomas, the, the president of OPS himself. Sure, uh, efforts have already been made, and uh, Smoky uh, has maintained a good relationship with, with the premier. It's been acknowledged by yes, he has. Um, we're all working hand in glove, um, and perhaps a little nudge of a reminder of perhaps you forgot, you know, paramedics. You forgot this group of workers um, may be helpful. Um, it, it's hard to say, but. Uh, The efforts uh, are being put forth to remind the decision makers that we we were overlooked and we should not have been.
0: Well, the three that I mentioned, uh, yourselves, obviously, as paramedics, and I, I think that's evident, the work and the contribution that you put on. Uh, respiratory therapists, I mean, that should be pretty obvious, too. We, On a daily basis, anybody who has seen any of the videos on on the news programs about what's going on in every hospital situation, uh, those that are hospitalized rely on respiratory therapists, and and even those that aren't hospitalized, if they're using home care, still have to have the visits from respiratory therapists. And pharmacists, I mean, anybody who's been to their pharmacy over the last little while since COVID's been on, uh, the lineups at the pharmacy count is right now, and it's actually a lot of the time it's people asking for advice, So, I mean, they're right up there, too, and exposed to this and and have to be educated about this. I mean, it's, I don't mean to sound too colloquial about this, but it's a team effort, and there's so many people involved on that team. And it's more doctors and nurses, yes, absolutely, Uh, you know, police, fire, but paramedics and everyone else that we've just talked about should be included in this, too. So I'm hoping there's going to be a a good solution to this, Mario, and I'm glad you had some time to talk to us about this and, and raise the issue once again.
2: Well, it's my pleasure talking to you as always, Bill, and I'm hoping that this issue is corrected. And to, uh, just to comment on the two professions that you referenced absolutely, respiratory therapists are at the head of the bed um, every day taking a risk, intubation, airway management, pharmacists. You've stated the obvious. Um, hopefully, there's a, a recognition, a recalibration of what uh, the premier has decided that are those frontline professions that are worthy of acknowledgement and some financial stipend um, and we're included in that in that list moving forward bill
0: hope so stay well and uh, you and your staff as well maria we'll stay in touch appreciate the time today
2: Thank you, and you stay well as well, Bill.
0: Take care. Thank you. Mary Postrero, President of OPSI, Local 256. As we mentioned earlier in the hour, as we move forward on this in some jurisdictions, including Ontario, they start talking about uh, next steps and, and where this is going to lead us. Uh, I, I'm pre- preaching caution at this stage because I'm not so sure that we are prepared uh, for those next steps. Uh, there's, to that point, there was a poll recently released by the Canadian Medical Association that says that the continued lack of personal protective equipment and testing materials is still one of the highest concerns uh, for physicians as we move forward. And, and some people are suggesting that, well, you know, we've, you know, we're on the downward side of this curve, the, the pandemic curve. Not so sure that's the case. And I think the Canadian Medical Association is very concerned about the implications if there's another spike and we don't have the stuff we need to fight this thing. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Gigi Osler, who is uh, with the Canadian Medical Association. Doctor, great to talk with you again. How are you doing today?
3: Pretty good. How are you doing?
0: We're hanging in, uh, as we all are, isolation and everything else, trying to do the best that we can uh, with our, mm-hmm. our physical distancing, et cetera. But I've, I've raised this issue many times before uh, about the the equipment that's necessary for this. And we've heard from day one that this pandemic uh, started to become a major issue here, that we have to have testing. We have to have testing. We don't have the apparatus for the testing, do we, to be able to do this on the level that we need to, to be able to track this disease and this virus?
3: Not yet. And I think what you're seeing across the country, and it varies from province to province, the public health officers are expanding the testing criteria. Mm -hmm. So we are slowly getting there in terms of testing more people, uh, but still we're limited to testing those folks who are symptomatic. And a lot of experts are really saying, ideally, we would test everybody, symptomatic or asymptomatic. You know, but we we understand the pressures that the public health officers are under and, you know, testing um, can't be done right now on everybody, probably simply because of supply. You know, this is a global pandemic where a lot of the needed equipment, whether it's testing kits, whether it's personal protective equipment, uh, is in high demand, not only across the country, but across the world. Um, you know, I, I'm in Winnipeg, and I can tell you, a few weeks ago, back in March, um, our provincial lab had run short of the reagent needed to do the tests. So we had a backlog in the early stages of the pandemic, which they've since been able to um, outsource and get the reagents. We've caught up. But, you know, you had spoken earlier about how the whole system needs to recalibrate or, or maybe it was mm-hmm. Mario had had spoken about that and I think uh, I couldn't agree more you know this pandemic is exposing the weaknesses in our healthcare system it's exposing the vulnerable people in the community group homes long-term care homes uh, and it is showing us the gaps and the needs that we really need to start filling now because There may be a second wave in the fall. There may be a third wave in the winter. We may have more pandemics in the future. So, you know, I couldn't agree more with the discussion that you just had uh, about uh, stepping up, providing for our frontline workers, doctors, nurses, paramedics, respiratory therapists, everyone, personal support workers out in the community. We need to support all of these folks now because they're all dealing with unprecedented levels of stress and anxiety, uh, because we still don't know what's coming in the months and years ahead.
0: One of the most tragic stories, among many tragic stories, that we've heard over the last little while was, it was the tragic story about the emergency room doctor in New York City. Uh, who was actually head of the department who committed suicide just a couple of days ago? Uh, they had been talking about her just a few days before that about the brilliant work that she and her staff were doing, but the stress levels apparently uh, just were too much, and, and and sadly she took her own life. Uh, mm-hmm. And and that I think is is something uh, that's a lesson that we have to learn here about the stress that's going on in the system. And you're absolutely mm-hmm. right, doctor. The, with the discussion we've had about long-term care facilities, the discussion we have about uh, the lack of proper equipment, COVID didn't create that. It exposed it. And, and if, mm-hmm. if we don't learn from that, we're, we're only going to repeat the same mistakes again.
3: Mm-hmm. And this poll is a follow-up poll to when we had done in March. And in March, the responses were, were very much the same with a lack of PPE and lack of information about how to get PPE in the current supply. It's only adding to the stress and anxiety that doctors across the country were feeling. And what we're hearing with this follow-up poll two weeks later is, you know, 42% of people said, you know what, I haven't seen a change in in PPE supply. It's still just as as it was a few weeks ago. A third said the situation was actually worse than a few weeks ago. And I I keep saying we have to remember that COVID-19 is a marathon and i agree with you i don't think the curve is decreasing yet it it has flattened certainly in some parts of the country i haven't yet seen that down slope and even if it does start to slip down as restrictions ease up and we start going out in the community more we're going to see the number of people sick with COVID 19 go up again
0: we know so that that's a w- given isn't it it, it is as we start it to is. socialize and congregate and, and mingle more people are going to get sick and that, that we're going to see a spike i don't know how high it's going to be but we just exactly. uh, don't know and uh, do we have the ability to be able to accommodate a spike like that
3: well and that's why part of this discussion right now supporting our workers right now um ppe supply right now is so important and for us as canadians to Listen to the public health experts. That's why not everything is going to open up all at once. Because the reason we have done such a good job in this country to flatten the curve is because we listen to the experts. We physically distance. We stayed at home as much as possible. We cut down the transmission of the virus in the community. That's why we flatten the curve. As the restrictions ease up, we start to go out in the community. The virus is still there. It's still going to get transmitted. We, we just don't know how bad it's going to be. So that's why we're seeing this slow easing of restrictions at different paces across the country. Like Saskatchewan, for example, is going to start to open up faster than some other provinces, uh, simply because they have slower rates of community transmission.
0: Well, we'll see how it tracks over the next little while. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Doctor. You're always uh, bottom lining this stuff and and, and talk to us in language that we can understand about some of the challenges ahead. I'd love to stay in touch as this evolves over the next little while. And as you say, this is not a sprint. It's a marathon. So I'm sure we'll have that opportunity. Take care of yourself and stay well. Thank you again for this today.
3: Thanks for having me on.
0: Take care. Dr. Gigi Osler, of course, from the Canadian Medical Association. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, of course, Ontario Premier Doug Ford announced uh, their plan. Well, he called it a roadmap because there are no specific dates as to when things are going to open, what's going to open, et cetera, et cetera. But at least give some people some idea. As to what could be happening with next steps. One of the things he did talk about, and, and it wasn't in a very positive way, uh, was about uh, sporting events and things of that nature, uh, like a Tiger Cat season, hmm? uh, like the rest of the NHL season, like the NBA playoffs, like Major League Baseball. And, uh, well, as uh, we've been discussing over the last couple of days, the summer of 2020 could well be not just the summer of boredom, but the summer of empty stadiums. Or not, we really don't know what's going to be happening at that stage. Uh, in a similar fashion, there's a, some important decision, notwithstanding what's going on with COVID-19, and I don't mean to underplay that for a second, but uh, City Council is going to have to make some important decisions about some other things, uh, including the Commonwealth Games bid, which, uh, of course, as we have reported first on our program about two and a half weeks ago now, uh, when Lou Frapporty was on with us, uh, there has been a change in the in the bid, and uh, it looks as if they're all, all but handing Hamilton the 2026 games, if we want them. And I'm not so sure what that answer is going to be. Sports Director Rick Zamprin, and also a horse of course, the fifth quarter, of course, on 900CHML, joins us to talk about this. Great to have you with us on the program. Thanks so much for this. Uh, listen, I want to get to the other aspect of this uh, about the Commonwealth in a second. But let's let's first of all talk about spectator sports, uh, whether it's watching our kids' Little League games or whatever, House League Baseball. or going to watch the Blue Jays or the Tiger Cats. Uh, I I don't know. I'm trying to get a read on whether or not this is going to happen. And I know the leagues are certainly talking the talk, but I'm not so sure that there's an end date for for what we're seeing right now.
4: Well, if it does happen, there will not be any fans in attendance. Because as we heard from the Premier yesterday, that uh, large gatherings, a.k.a. sporting events and concerts, will be a no-go for the quote-unquote foreseeable futures. So if and this is a big if, if leagues like the NHL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, uh, MLS, of course the CFL, which the season is uh, right around the corner at least uh, on on paper it is, uh, if they decide that listen, we have a strategy to host these games in a safe venue that keeps our players, and officials and our coaches and some staff safe, uh, we can do it A, B, and C, and this is how we're going to do it. At the end of the day, though, the fans will not be in attendance. And for leagues like the CFL and the NHL to a certain extent, because those two leagues, uh, aside from uh, the NBA and uh, in Major League Baseball, those two leagues are really reliant uh, or more heavily reliant on ticket sales. So they might have a strategy in place. Whether it makes financial sense is a different discussion.
0: What's that going to do to the league? And let's talk about the CFL, for instance. And, and I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the gate, the people that actually buy tickets, uh, drives that. The other element that drives their revenue sources is their TV contract, which exclusively, of course, is with TSN and has been for the last number of years how interested are they going to be to show football games in front of empty stadiums, and and who knows how many games? I mean, obviously it's going to be a shortened schedule, Uh, so even if TSN says, no, we're with you all the way, uh, they're going to take a haircut here on the money they're going to get from TV revenue.
4: Definitely, and and listen, they already have because, you know, they haven't or they won't be able to you know blow up the season opener on on June the 11th. Uh, You know, training camps have been delayed. The season at this point is not going to start until the start of July, so for, for any broad whether it's TSN or ESPN in the States or ABC, NBC, whatever the case is, uh, all these uh, broadcasters are uh, waiting on the sidelines, waiting for their leagues to begin. So if you are a TSN and you're thinking, uh, you know, do we want to broadcast half a season of CFL football? The answer is yes, because the only way they're going to make money broadcasting these games is to broadcast the games, get that sponsorship money flowing in. Otherwise, they won't have that. So, you know, this is a, a a no-brainer in terms of the broadcaster. They want the games to occur, uh, whether it looks uh, like the stadium is empty or not. I mean, we've seen empty stadiums in Toronto, so I think CFL fans are somewhat used to that. But I think knowing what is going on, the, the new reality right now, I think uh, viewers will understand what is happening. I think uh, for sports fans, they just want some new content, you know, watching those classic NHL or NBA games from years gone by gets you, you know, excited or amped up to a point, but seeing new content that what is going to happen in this particular situation, that's what sports fans love about sports.
0: Yeah. We were talking about that this past weekend. Uh, with all the, it was a relatively nice day, but I said, you know, I, I'm really missing baseball. I mean, that was kind of like the bellwether for this time of year. You know that the nice weather's coming when baseball season starts, and well, baseball season hasn't started, and and it, it's awfully frustrating. I think we use that as, as kind of a barometer for us. And you're right, CFL training camps are going to be getting underway pretty soon, and I've talked to a lot of frustrated fans that are saying, well, maybe maybe they'll just allow some fans in as long as we keep social distancing. And I said, <laughs> how do you do that? How do you say you can't go, you can go?
4: Yeah. Well, and. He- Here's the other reality, too. And uh, let's just take Tim Horton's field for an example. You have a capacity of, let's just say it's 23,000. A, who do you let in and who do you not let in? B, um, you know, seating them, uh, physically distancing is, is fine. But the question is, how do you get those individuals to physically distance themselves even before they get into the stadium? Anyone who's been to Tim Hortons Field and has been in their seat early sees to the to the left and to the right that there are hordes of fans trying to get into the facility. So this would be a gong show to physically distance even before they get into the stadium. And then once you're in, uh, is everyone allowed to go at the concessions at once? Uh, do you have to form some kind of uh, physical distancing line like we see in the supermarket? It would be there. There are a number of huge question marks to answer, and I don't think many of them have answers.
0: All right, let's cover a couple of the other sports. Uh, NBA, the Raptors had a, a great start to the second half. They were kicking butt, uh, making a run. To this, I think their record was just about, uh, identical to what they had there in their championship year. Uh, are they going to have a playoff? And the same thing goes with the NHL. I mean, I know hockey fans are chomping at the bit. But they're talking about finishing the season in July and August now, if then, and again, that's going to be in front of empty arenas.
4: Yes, so the NBA and the NHL, it looks like if they do come back and resume their seasons, it will be in front of empty venues. The NBA was planning to restart some limited practices for players, voluntary workouts is what they were calling them, at uh, some team facilities by this Friday. They've now pushed that back until May the 8th. Uh, As for the NHL, they have somewhat of a framework in place, although nothing is really set in stone. But informal small group skates would be held between May 15th and the 31st uh, training camps and exhibition play would be held basically in June, uh, in July and September. They would finish off the regular season, play their playoffs, hand out the Stanley Cup. There would be a, a, a quote unquote off season after that with free agency, arbitration, all that kind of stuff. And then training camps would open again for the 2020 season sometime in mid-November and then from mid to late December, the regular season would begin. So they have a roadmap like the provincial government has. But again, uh, whether or not they're able to hit these timelines uh, is a big question mark.
0: I, you and I were talking before we got into this isolation thing because they were speculating about playing in front of empty arenas. And who is that? One of the guys on the on Colorado and one of the, the reporters asked him, he says, how do you feel about playing in front of empty arenas? And he says, hey, I played for Florida. I mean, I, I'm used <laughs> to this. So, and, of course, here in the <laughs> CFL, the joke is, well, yeah, I played for the Argos, so I'm used to empty stadiums. Right. Uh, but but it's it's trying to make light of a, a very serious situation, and, and my concern uh maybe not so much for nhl owners and uh, but uh or nba owners for that matter but the cfl uh uh, you know about whether or not these guys can hang on financially i mean this this is a real punch to you know gut punch to these guys i mean because a lot of these franchises well we already know montreal's in a tenuous situation uh the toronto situation goes as it goes uh you know, I, I just hope they can hang on. That's all.
4: Yeah, Mon- Montreal's an interesting uh, story because they have new ownership now. So you would think that they have the financial wherewithal to at least. Uh, suffer any kind of losses this year, although obviously they didn't think they were planned losses. And as far as Toronto goes, you know, MLSE has deep pockets so they can, uh, you know, weather any kind of storm there. The fact of the matter is, you know, who's going to come back once the CFL and the Argos come back? I think that's probably the bigger question. But for the CFL, you know, even if it's a half a season, say it starts on Labor Day, uh, you know, you have your national TV broadcaster. They're happy. The sponsors are happy. The fans are somewhat happy because they have content, even though they're not allowed into the state. This would be, I think, an exciting season because it is a sprint to the finish. There's eight or nine games. They'll probably just play within their division. So it would be the Cats versus the Argos, the Alouettes and the Red Blacks. And that is it until uh, you know the playoffs and the Grey Cup. So from a fan perspective, there, there's probably going to be, well, there definitely will be a lot of interest once the season resumes. What that season looks like, we still don't know
0: which by the way is kind of a throwback I, it was i think it was 1962 is when the cfl started an interlocking schedule right, east and west i mean we're used to that that's the new normal but back in the early days in the 50s and early 60s the east only played in the east the west only played in the west which just made the playoffs so exciting because you never got to see these guys so i guess it's going to be uh, everything old is new again well, listen got a couple of minutes left rick i want to talk to you about the the commonwealth thing i know that uh, the that you and scott radley and our good friend bubba o'neill from ch were doing a, a, a i guess it was a zoom thing about this a couple of days ago
4: yes this is something that we've launched and uh, thrown on twitter it's called home games hamilton it's pretty fun
0: anyway uh interesting debate interesting discussion and of course the the new wrinkle in this that we found out about when i had for reporting on the show a couple of weeks ago now suggesting as we we're talking obviously and focusing on the 2030 games the 100th anniversary games for hamilton and the, the the international committee basically came back to them and said look do you guys want the 2026 games basically putting the on a, on a silver platter if hamilton wants them what do we do
4: yeah, so basically uh, the only other bid that was out there was Adelaide, Australia, and they said thanks, but no thanks. So basically Hamilton is the only city up for consideration for the 2026 Commonwealth Games. And with any event this Large of this scope of this magnitude, there are some pros and cons. The pros are, uh, yes, we get some. Hopefully, we get some funding from upper levels of government to build some facilities that would be needed to host these games. More importantly, the infrastructure that goes along with those facilities. But the cons are uh, the price tag, and I know that uh, you know, Lou and uh, Commonwealth Games 100 uh, and the committee has done a phenomenal job in uh, you know drumming up a lot of private sector support, and that is definitely needed in a commonwealth bay- games bid of this magnitude but the fact of the matter is if we don't get that government funding which is uh, you know uh, up in the air right now with what is going on uh, in our landscape and let's not forget 2026 is not too long away so we're going to yeah. have to start building these things and planning these things so uh, you know if hamilton wants it we got it but uh, uh, you know we should tread carefully because there are some pitfalls here
0: Oh, there always are when you're doing these sorts of games, and uh, the other side to this, of course, and, and you know, I bridged this with the mayor a couple of days ago as well, is uh, you know we're talking about infrastructure improvement and getting people back to work. Uh, this is a guaranteed idea to get people back to work and start building stuff. But the other, as we talked to Lou Foppodi and, and P.J. Mercanti and some of the other folks from Hamilton 100, a lot of the facilities that they would use for those games, if it were to happen. Already exist. It's just a matter of maybe sprucing them up a little bit. So I mean, the cost is is going to be extreme. You're right, but not as high as it would be if we were starting from from scratch.
4: And, and there's two provisos here too. I mean, and when we're talking about venues, you know, a swimming pool uh, that would be probably based out of McMaster University would sure. be, you know, probably the highlight venue in this in this city. But if this games is uh, is a little more regionalized, maybe not as regionalized as what we had with the Pan Am Games, but you know, certain events were uh, you know put out to Burlington. Or, or, or St. Catharines, whatever the case is, maybe that cost factor isn't as huge, but now you're going to have to rely on other communities to come to the table to say, yeah, we want these games too.
0: It's it's a very tight time frame, and and that's why it was such a shock when Luke gave us that news a couple of weeks ago as to where this is going to be right now. And uh, I can understand how there's some reticence on city council saying, well, you know, we can't even focus on this. But uh, I, I think we have to demand that of our politicians. I, I don't mean to be too crass about it, but they have got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Yes, they're dealing with COVID. And yes, this is huge. But at the same time, it, it, we've already started the discussion about what's the city going to do on the other side? How are we going to create employment? How are we going to create a buzz in this community again? And uh, I I think if that's the discussion we're going to have, I think the Commonwealth Games bid has to be part of that discussion.
4: Yeah, definitely too. And uh, listen, I think at the end of the day, uh, residents, taxpayers want to see everything in black and white. They want to see how much uh, the, the the Commonwealth Games budget is. How much is it actually going to cost? Because we know we always know it goes over budget. You know, what are some of the contingencies? How much money would we get from the federal or provincial governments? And uh, and and then I think we can make an informed decision whether it's going to be part of any kind of referendum going forward. I doubt it because these timelines are really tight. Commonwealth Games. Can Committee members uh, have to make a decision by, the, I think it's June 1st or sometime in June. Yeah, so, yeah, the pedal is to the metal here. And uh, and uh, I'm not sure all the questions are going to be answered before decision is made.
0: Quick question for you here, just an email from one of our listeners as you and I are having this discussion. Uh, if, in fact, these, these sports franchises and sports leagues try to get things going, NBA and, and, and Major League Baseball, for instance, and probably the two dominant ones. What about cross-border traffic? I mean, if that border is closed to all but commercial traffic, are are sports teams going to be able to go back and forth? That is
4: the big question because, uh, listen, the border is closed until the end of the month. Uh, A lot of these timelines for play is for after June the 1st. So I think from that standpoint, if the border is open, great. If it's not, think about the CFL and all the American players who are in the U.S. and would not be able to come to Canada. That is a major conundrum and a great question that does not have an answer yet.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's not just hey, you know, can the Jays go to play in New York and vice versa? It's because those those players from the Dominican from America come up to play in Toronto. They're not there yet. Yeah,
4: or or a lot of Canadian hockey players who play with you know said U.S. team. It's uh, exactly. It it it, 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 that's a sticky wicket.
0: Well, stay tuned. Lots to be determined. Rick Zamprin, CHML Sports Director. Always a pleasure, Rick. Thanks Thanks, so much for this. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML.